Approximately 30,000 deaths each year in the United States are attributed to poisonings. Approximately 80% were unintentional. Two million poisonings are reported each year to poison control centers around the country. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Carlton. Dr. Carlton is a practicing internist and addiction medicine specialist in Phoenix. He has detoxed over 30,000 patients. In addition to these duties, he is associate professor for the Maricopa Psychiatric Residency Training Program. Welcome, Dr. Carlton. Welcome, Dr. Lent. Thank you for having me on your show today. So I, I have to admit straight out here, Dr. Carlton, that, that I don't know much about poisonings, and I'm, I'm really relying on you to educate me today. What is the general approach to a poisoned patient? Your statistics are right. The big thing is a lot of times we have to remember that poisonings often occur by accident. One common way is um, I think I'm taking one pill and I'm taking uh, a doubling up on the dose of one of my other medications. I drop or grandma's over at the house and grandma opens up her antihypertensive medications. She drops three or four tablets on the floor. She picks up only two or three of them. And then little Johnny, who's two years old, comes along and is much better at finding things on the carpet than grandma is, picks that up and takes it. And so then they run into trouble uh, surely by accident. So what do you do if you're a primary care physician and you suspect someone's been poisoned? What are the steps we should take? Well, the most important step you can have, and this is not just for the primary care provider, but everybody in their office, is that they need to know and they need to have right on the top of their head, not just at their fingertips, but they need to know the phone number for their regional poison control center. Poison control centers are just tremendous places. They have all the information that, that, that people will need. They are much better at assessing a patient in these settings because they've heard these stories time after time, whether somebody really needs to go into the hospital and be seen and be evaluated, or if this is somebody that can stay home. Many times our poison control center here in Phoenix, when they talk to people, will say, if this is what's going on, we're going to be talking to you every five minutes. And the poison center will just call them back every five minutes and say what's going on. And if there's no progression of symptoms, then they're comfortable and the calls become less frequent until they're out of danger. If, the, if there seems to be progression, then they will have 911 over at the patient's house real quickly. So clearly history is everything in these patients. How do you get a good history? That's often very difficult. When something happens to a child, very difficult to know what they've done. I mean, I ask my kids all the time, who did this? And it's like, I don't know, not me. <laughs> you know, and these aren't going to be any different. Kids will just kind of pick things up and put things into their mouth. Kids will chew on plants that are around the house. And many of the things that we use as decorative plants may cause problems. Some of things, well, most of them will cause simply local irritation, but others can cause other kinds of systemic toxicity. So it's, it's very difficult to know what's going on. But clearly, the history is certainly one of the most important things that you can get from the patient to try to find out what's been going on, asking about other people in the house or in the area, other medications that they may have been on, other hobbies that they have. Uh, one of our things that we see down here in the Southwest is there's a lot of old abandoned mines. And uh-huh. People will go into those mines and then start taking rock out and start mining for gold and silver. And the best way to get gold out of rock is to boil it in mercury. No. Well, mercury vapors are toxic. And if you don't know what's happening, that, that the father or the grandfather does this as kind of a hobby, you may not know that one of the kids has been around at the time when the mercury is boiling and may have inhaled some of those fumes and gotten sick from that. So clearly you want to remove the patient from the source. Um, how do you do that? The first thing you want to do is, is stabilize the patient. And just like in any emergency situation, that's the old ABCs. Make sure they have an open airway, make sure that they're breathing well, and make sure that their circulation is, is fine. 
then you start looking for any kind of neurologic deficits to make sure they haven't fallen, hurt themselves, and, and that, that this is not a traumatic injury rather than uh, potentially a chemical one. The next thing you want to do is you really do want to be careful. If somebody is laying in a puddle of something, you don't necessarily know what that is. And you may not want to put yourself at risk by saving someone else, which is why in any situation like that, again, through the Poison Control Center, you can call them and they can activate not only the emergency medical services, but any hazardous materials team if they need to. Again, it's been a long time since I've had to deal with these issues. Uh, back when I was in training, we ipecac everybody. Is that still being used? Well, Ipecac for many, many years was actually recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics that everybody with children should have that in, our, in the house. In fact, Leslie, I know that you have kids, and um, that was certainly the recommendation with, when your kids were little. It was the recommendation when my kids were little as well. Most poison control centers, however, and finally now the American Academy of Pediatrics, is finally getting away from that. The reason is because, number one, there's never been, uh, in, our, in our modern uh, way of looking at things, there's never been a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-center trial that shows that Ipecac works. The problem with Ipecac is that sometimes you give it to kids and they throw up. Sometimes you give it to kids and they don't throw up. Oh. Sometimes it takes five minutes. Sometimes it takes an hour and a half. And in the meantime, while you're waiting for all that, there's lots of other things that you could potentially be doing uh, that are better and that are more proven. And in addition to that, if there starts to be compromise of the airway because of whatever they are exposed to is now causing an alteration in mental status, you may have induced vomiting in somebody whose airway is not going to be protected. And so that can cause aspiration pneumonia, which can lead to worsened respiratory problems, the need for mechanical ventilation, and sometimes even uh, the acute inflammatory respiratory distress syndrome. So the goal of ipecacing, of course, would be to induce vomiting so that you reduce absorption of the offending poison. Um, what about other ways to res- reduce absorption? Well, certainly if you have any experience in an emergency room, the emergency room's uh, favorite way is gastric lavage. And this requires putting a tube in, a nasogastric tube, usually sometimes, however, an oral gastric tube, and you're going to put a bunch of fluid in, and you're going to kind of flush this in and then try to get things out. The reason that that doesn't work particularly effectively is because most people will put a nasogastric tube in that's so small that even if you're actively lavaging pill fragments out, they won't come back up the tube. Oral gastric tubes are much harder. They're certainly big enough to do that with, but people tend to gag a lot more when they have the oral gastric tubes, and so that becomes less effective as well. On the other hand, certainly many people within the emergency room say, well, you know, we've got to go do this because this time, the next time they think about doing this to themselves, they'll think twice. And, and clearly there's no evidence for that. Yeah, certainly the, the punishment involved uh, seemed to inspire glee in some emergency room personnel. Well, I think it's, there's this misconception that just because I'm thinking about hurting myself, um, my brain is still completely functioning, is, is functioning completely normally. What we know is that by the time people get to that state in their life, their brains are not functioning normally. They're not going to think, you know, I really don't want to live anymore, and I think I'm going to kill myself. But you know what? They might put a tube in my nose, and that would be uncomfortable, and you know, maybe, maybe I don't want to do this. Right. You know, by the time you get to that point, you're not, think, you're not thinking that way at all. So, Mike, what about the administration of cathartics? primary issue with administration of cathartics is to decrease transit time through the intestinal tract. The faster these pills or whatever I've ingested gets through my tract, the less likely I have I am to be sick. Hopefully, the less uh, time this chemical has to be absorbed. If the, if the serum levels and the blood levels and the intestinal levels are lower, then what can happen is we can actually have patients have less side effects. The problem with that is, once again, the studies just have not been very good at showing us that this works. 
In fact, with gastric lavage, for example, there was even a study that showed that when they put radio-labeled pill fragments in, you pushed more down into the esophagus than you brought back up out of the stomach. And if I push it into the esophagus, now I'm actually going to increase, for many chemicals, the rate of absorption because for many things, they will get it absorbed quicker across the small bowel than they do across the acidic lining of the stomach. So the other end, of course, would be to enhance elimination. Does that work? Yes and no. If you're specifically giving something just like x or something like that, that really doesn't work. Clearly, the treatment of choice is activated charcoal. And activated charcoal really is in itself a cathartic. That's not why it's given, but it is in itself a cathartic. In fact, on average, people will have their first bowel movement uh, stooling out the activated charcoal within about four to six hours of ingestion. So that's pretty quick time to get through that intestinal tract. Dr. Carlton, aren't there antidotes for most poisonings? Well, certainly the universal antidote is what I just mentioned, which is activated charcoal. Uh, activated charcoal binds most things that will get into the intestinal tract. There are a few exceptions, some small things like iron. Iron is not bound up by activated charcoal. But if you look at most of the common things that are either intentionally or, as we already talked about, accidentally ingested, most of those things will be absorbed by the activated charcoal. Uh, Activated charcoal is really pretty easy to take in. I've actually tasted it before, and it's pretty tasteless. There's actually, when we have kids, we have this thick, viscous liquid and they can suck it up in a straw, and they get a choice of of about 10 different flavors. And once they suck it up, it just coats their mouth with this flavor, and all they can feel for the rest of the time they're drinking, or taste for the rest of the time they're drinking charcoal, is whichever flavor they've picked. They still get kind of the grit that comes along with charcoal, but it's actually uh, not, not so hard to get kids to take it in, particularly if you don't let them look at it. If you let them kind of suck it up through a straw, I think that works a lot better. So activated charcoal is, is generally considered the universal antidote. Um, But there are other antidotes uh, out there. The problem with antidotes is, however, that they really are pretty few and far between. There's not that many, given the fact that just from prescription drugs alone, we have about eight to 9,000 prescription drugs. There are really only about two dozen antidotes that are out there and available. So is there any case where activated charcoal would be contraindicated? Activated charcoal is never contraindicated, but as I said, there are things like hydrofluoric acid exposures, some other types of acid exposures, or iron exposure if somebody's overdosed on iron, where the utility of it wouldn't be there. The problem is if somebody reaches into the medicine cabinet and grabs a handful of pills, they may have primarily taken iron, but they may have grabbed several other things in the process. And so when we have patients who come through our poison center, the goal is still to give them activated charcoal, even if we know that the primary problem is iron, because there may be other things that go along with that iron that can cause problems. So it's not going to hurt them. It may not help if their primary ingestion is something like iron. Right. Okay, what are the most common things that you see in terms of poisoning? Well, the most common thing that we see in poisoning is really Tylenol. Tylenol is everywhere. It's available everywhere. It's, it's in combinations of medications, whether you're talking about prescription medicines like the narcotics like Percocet and Vicodin, or if you're talking about Ultraset, it's there. But then it's on all kinds of uh, people's shelves just because Tylenol is everywhere. It's available generically. It's available inexpensively under multiple different um, uh, brand names. And fortunately for Tylenol, there actually is an antidote. The antidote is, is called Mucamist or uh, N-acetylcysteine. This is a very nasty, foul, uh, rotten egg-smelling compound. It actually is a sulfur-based compound, and it's used for Tylenol overdoses. Historically, it's been done orally. Uh, The problem with giving it orally is, as I've already said, it smells bad, it tastes bad, and it 
tends to give people nausea. But more and more, we're using it intravenously. And that's done two things. Number one is it gets us around the whole uh, ingestional uh, issue. The other thing is when you give uh, mucamist or N-acetylcysteine to somebody orally, typically you're, they're going to be getting it for about 72 hours. Uh, when you give it intravenously, there are various protocols, but the protocols are anywhere from as little as 20 hours to as much as 48 hours. And so you can get people through hospitalization much quicker um, with a lot lower side effect profile as well as a very well-tolerated medication. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Carlton. We have been discussing how to manage the poisoned patient. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.